This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. How did Jeremiah die? Last week we left him as he trekked off into Egypt. And he'd been taken there by Johanan, who was the self-declared leader of the remnant in Judah. And I mentioned last week about how Gedaliah, who was the governor there, was assassinated. Johanan went after his assassinator, and he kind of made himself the new leader. Um, But then, because of fear, he brought um, the people of Judah, most of them at least, he, he fled with them down into Egypt, and he brought Jeremiah and Baruch with him. And so that's kind of where we left Jeremiah last time. Uh, There are a couple of prophecies that Jeremiah gives while in Egypt. He talks about the fact that the Babylonians are going to come even down into Egypt. And he also talks about the fact that those from Judah who have fled down into Egypt are, are facing the judgment of God. Because God told them, don't do it. They did it anyway. And he said, because of that, their, their lineage is not going to continue. They're not going to be able to make it back to Judah. And so Jeremiah does have a couple of prophetic messages that he shares even after going to Egypt, but there's not much that we get in Scripture. He just kind of fades, fades out of the picture. And so there's a lot of questions about, um, about what happened with his remaining life. He was about 60 years old when he went to, to Egypt. So Presumably, he had a good deal of life left in him. Uh, But how much longer did he live? And what happened to him during that time? Uh, There are references to certain leaders in the book of Jeremiah that suggest that he was still alive around 570 B.C. If he did live that long, he would have been in his mid-70s at that point. Um, And some have even suggested, I won't get into the details of why, but some have even suggested that he may have lived until nearly 90 years old because of how some of the things are written. Uh, But whether he died at 60 or 75 or 90, we're not really sure. Um, But do we have any idea of how his life ended? Well, Scripture is silent on this. And if you're like me, you find yourself rooting for Jeremiah. You're like, man, it's all been hardship, it's all been pain, it's, it's all been just, all of these horrible things in Jeremiah's life. I really hope that he can find some peace, that he can live out the rest of his life, apart from all of the, uh, all of the violence and all the hatred. And maybe that's what happened. But tradition suggests otherwise. Uh, there are actually several stories that have been presented for how Jeremiah met his end. Different stories that have been told over the years, um, traditions that have been passed down. But they all seem to involve violent and ignominious deaths. And the leading tradition is no exception to that. Probably the most well-known tradition about how Jeremiah died, uh, and this one is referenced by several uh, leaders in the early centuries of the church, including names like Jerome and Tertullian, This is what they say happened to Jeremiah. They say that he was stoned to death in Egypt. And that is kind of the leading tradition that's been passed down through the church, at least, about how Jeremiah died. We don't know for sure. 
But I have to say it's not too hard to believe based on how Jeremiah's life played out, that his life would end this way. It's also not hard for me to imagine Jeremiah in this experience like Stephen in Acts 7. We know that story as Stephen was stoned and he, he gazed up into heaven, he saw the glory of God, he saw Jesus at his right hand, um, and then as the stones rained down, he fell on his knees, he cried out to God to receive his spirit. Um, it's not hard for me to see Jeremiah meeting his end in much the same way that Stephen did. Looking to God, God granting him grace, crying out to God to receive his spirit, even with such a, a horrible death. But whether it was in that way or another, um, at some point Jeremiah's life did come to an end. He entered into his rest, uh, a rest which he experienced very little of while on earth. And so Jeremiah's ministry was over. Or was it? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to consider Jeremiah's legacy. Now, when we talk about a legacy, what is a legacy? Um, there's a lot of talk about legacy in our days. I feel like that's one of those words that's become more a part of what people are talking about than it used to. Uh, but And people talk about uh, building a legacy. Talk about leaving a legacy. They talk about continuing someone else's legacy. And those are phrases we hear thrown around quite a bit. But what, what really is a legacy? And I think in the context we're talking about, a legacy is what someone leaves behind when they die that can continue to make a difference. So all of us, when we die, are going to leave a lot of things behind. But the reality of it is very little of what we leave behind is going to make a difference in the world. Our clothes, our cars, our houses, even our investments are probably not going to do much to change anyone's life. But our legacy has to do with our influence and our investment in the lives of others. It's not just about being remembered, but it's about making a difference. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the legacy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, when it comes to his physical belongings, probably left very little behind. But he certainly left a legacy. Now we think about, if, if I were to ask you, what, what legacy are you going to leave behind? Well, many of us would probably immediately begin to think about our family. Um, after all, that tends to be a great part of what we put our influence into. And there will be those who we love and care for and those we've invested in who in some way or another are going to carry some part of us on as we have had an influence on them. But, uh, Lord willing for good. And we, we often think in the area of family when we think of our legacy, but think about Jeremiah. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have any children. So he didn't leave a legacy that way. If you're saying his legacy is going to be that someone carries on his name, well, that didn't happen. He didn't have any kids. So let's take a look. We're, we're, this is not going to be an exhaustive study, but we're going to consider a few aspects of the influence that Jeremiah and his ministry continued to have even after his death. 
And I hope it will give us a greater appreciation for this man and the God that he served. And I hope it will also cause us to think about how we too can leave a meaningful legacy. What that looks like. And what it is about Jeremiah that made that true that can be true about us as well. So the first thing we'll consider, and perhaps the most obvious, if we're thinking about what carried on after Jeremiah died, is promises that were kept. Uh, Certainly, a key part of the legacy of a true prophet is going to be fulfilled prophecy. All right? If it's a true prophet and they've made prophecies, part of their legacy is going to be the fact that those things are going to happen. And we see that with Jeremiah, for sure. He, He gave many predictions, most of which were universally misbelieved or ignored when he gave them. But as we've already seen, his prophecies did come true. He prophesied the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. And, as we've already seen, Jerusalem fell. Uh, we've already considered it to some degree, but let's, let's see how Jeremiah's word proved true with Judah's captivity. Uh, we're going to head over to 2 Chronicles 36. Starting out here, 2 Chronicles 36. We'll, we'll be jumping to a few different places as we consider different aspects of this tonight. We can start out here. And this chapter chronicles the fall of Judah. And we've already looked at the last chapter of 2 Kings, which does the same. But they do, the, they do so in a slightly different way from each other. Here in 2 Chronicles 36, the writer, while sharing that, also reminds us about what happened with prophetic ministries like Jeremiah's as Judah moved towards exile. And so let's just, let's just read it there. 2 Chronicles 36. I'm going to read verses 11 to 21. A little bit of an extended passage, but um, it'll get us through the story here. So, verse 11, Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So those messengers, of course, are talking about the prophets. Jeremiah and others, who God sent to warn his people. But they mocked the messengers of God, and despised his words, and misused his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man, or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand, And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon, and they burnt the house of God, and break down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof, and them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons, until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. 
So, these verses mention Jeremiah a couple of times, mention his fellow prophets, and their ministry of warning, as well as Judah's failure to heed those warnings. They mocked and despised and misused the prophets. And God sends Babylon in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecies. The people of Judah spend 70 years as exiles, like Jeremiah said they would. They're taken off to Babylon, which, uh, incidentally, during those 70 years, gets taken over by Persia. Um, and that's recorded for us in the book of Daniel. You can read about how the, the kings went on there in Babylon and Persia came in and took over. But that happens during those 70 years. But Jeremiah has promised this is going to happen, and it comes to pass, according to his word. But also... Jeremiah had promised Judah's return. So how was that fulfilled? Well, continuing on in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me. And he hath charged me to build an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now this is really a remarkable chapter in Judah's history. And to really be able to appreciate this, I want us to actually move ahead a page in your Bible or whatever you need to over to the, uh, the book of Ezra, chapter 1. So we're moving from the last verse of Second Chronicles to the first verse of Ezra, which potentially you don't even have to turn the page. And Ezra kind of expands on this a little bit and tells us a little bit more about this. I, I just want us to see how God worked to fulfill the prophecy of, Je of Jeremiah here. So let's begin with Cyrus's uh, proclamation in Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing saying, so we, we've seen this already in 2 Chronicles 36. This is a, a repetition of what's given there. But he says that the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. All right, so that's, we've kind of already seen that part. But he goes on and he says, And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So this is an amazing proclamation. All right, we might think the people of Judah are in exile. It's been 70 years, okay? They, they were taken into exile in Babylon. They've been under the Babylonians. The Persians have taken over, and they think, hey, here's our opportunity. New, new, you know, new administration, maybe they're going to be easier on us. And so let's go and petition the king that he'll allow us to go back to the land. But that's not what's happening here. It's not that the people are saying, please, 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 Cyrus, let us go back to Jerusalem. No, 
it comes not from the people to Cyrus, but from Cyrus to the people. And he makes this proclamation. This King Cyrus says, God wants me to have the temple rebuilt. Who's going to help me accomplish that? How amazing is that? And think about the fact that, that Cyrus is, it's not like Persia is some great Christian empire, you know, or some great Jewish empire. These are, these are God-fearing people, and that's what Persia is known for. Not at all. This is a pagan nation, and presumably a pagan king, although it appears here that God's done something in his heart, and he's, he proclaims that the Lord is God in these verses. But this is not the angle we'd expect this to come from. We don't expect the leader of Persia to be saying, we've got to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Why would he care? And yet, he's saying this. He says, we're going to rebuild the temple. I want you to help me. Who's going to go help me? And then he says, basically, if, you, if you're going to decide, I want you to make a do donation to the GoFundMe page that we've set up for the, for the rebuilding of the temple. All right. They didn't have GoFundMe back then, so they had to bring their gold and their silver and their, their beasts to you know, help in the work. But he's basically saying, you go, and if you can't go, give. We've got to make this happen. And that's what King Cyrus is saying here. This pagan king, but God is not limited in who he can use as his instrument. And Cyrus is one of the great biblical illustrations of that. God says it's been 70 years it's time, Cyrus, you're going to make a decree. And he uses Cyrus to make this proclamation. So how do the people respond to Cyrus's proclamation? Well, verse 5, Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all of them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. So the people were ready. The people responded enthusiastically to King Cyrus, ready to return to the land. And you might say, well, that makes sense. These are people of Judah. They want to go back. Think about this for a minute. It's been 70 years. Most of these people have probably never even been to Judah or Jerusalem. And you say, we've got to go rebuild this city and this temple and right now, everything's burned and broken down. You might think the people would be kind of like, ah, I don't know, it's pretty, it's pretty comfortable here. We've figured out life here. You know, why would we go through all of this trouble to go back? And this is not going to be an easy project. We might have provision, but this is going to be quite an undertaking. Um, this sounds like it's not going to be worth the effort. And we can easily see people kind of responding that way. The king says, we've got to do this, and the people are like, eh, I don't know about that. But that's not what we see at all. They're enthusiastic. They're ready to go. And those who are not going are giving, as the king has said. And so what is the explanation of this? Well, some of it's got to be national pride. These people are excited to get their nation going again. Jerusalem has been been in ruins for too long, the temple has been broken down for too long, and they're excited to change that. But what is really at the heart of this? And I love that it, that it points out to us. Did you notice what it said? It said, all them whose spirit God had raised. God is stirring these people's spirits. 
And also, back in verse 1, it said, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. God says it's been 70 years. It's time for my temple to be rebuilt. And he stirs the heart of this king. And he stirs the heart of his people. And they say, we're ready to go. God is at work. God is putting the puzzle pieces together. He has got all of the different things going that need to be going to fulfill the word that he spoke through Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah's prophecy is fulfilled. And 70 years after the exile, here they are getting ready to go to Jerusalem. But as if all of that isn't enough, that the king has said, you're going to go, the people are excited about it, we also see a reference to the temple's gold. Uh, notice in verses, verse 7. And Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus king of Persia bring forth by the hand of Mithridath the treasurer, and number them unto Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this is the number of them, 30 chargers of gold, 1,000 chargers of silver, 9 and 20 knives, 30 basins of gold, silver basins of a second sort, 410, and other vessels 1,000. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon into Jerusalem. Now, at first glance, this looks like it's just an accounting of some things that change hand, you know. It's just somebody taking down some details of, you know, an invoice or whatever. But stop and think about how significant this is for these people. There are multiple references. Every time this story is told, they talk about the fact that Nebuchadnezzar went into the temple and he ripped all the gold and the silver and all the precious things out of the temple and brought them to Babylon. And that was a major slap in the face to the people of Judah. Because this is their place of worship. This is the house where they go to give honor to their God. This is the central, the central place of culture and of religion and of identity for the people of Judah. Because God is at the center of all that they do. And Nebuchadnezzar goes in there and he rips all the precious stuff out and, and takes it off to Babylon. And that was a significant day for the people of Judah. And now, they're getting ready to go back. And Cyrus says, there's one thing I almost forgot. And he goes into the pagan temple where these things have been kept. And he carefully gathers all of it together and counts the things out. 5,400 different items that had come out of the temple. And he says, here's all of it back. A careful accounting of every bit of it. Here you go take it back to put in the new temple you're going to build. And what, there is no greater gift he could have given to the people as they're going to Judah. He's saying, here are all these things that were taken away. Here is a promise of a restoration. And they're going to be able to go back and they're going to be able to rebuild that temple and they're going to be able to put those original gold and silver pieces back in that temple and what a glorious day this is. And what a mark of the hand of God on every bit of it. He is working this all together, even down to the point where he's making sure all of those original things are going to be able to make it back into the temple. 
And it was really amazing that after 70 years, something else wasn't done with that precious metal. I'm not sure if they're just stored there or they're using them or... Yeah, it's not... Didn't, like melt them down and make something else out of them. Right. You, you kept, they kept uh, all, all 29 knives. <laughs> they, they didn't, they didn't, it is amazing. And like you said, I don't know. And it's not super clear. Were they stored in a, in a storage closet in the temple? Were they being used in that temple to try to beautify things? We don't know. But it is amazing that God had allowed over those 70 years, plus actually, because it was before that that the things were torn out of the temple. Everything to be preserved, and uh, what a, what a picture of his of his sovereign grace in in this in the lives of the people of Israel, uh, blessing them and guiding them through this. But th- this is certainly a part of the legacy of Jeremiah, prophecy fulfilled. We also see that there are promises that are yet unfulfilled. Jeremiah says less about Christ than many of the other prophets. Um, there are some of the prophets that were very messianic. They talked a lot about Christ. Jeremiah is not one of them. But he did make some, some prophecies that, that reference Christ. We're going to look at a couple of notable examples tonight. First, Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 5. He says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is the name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. So Christ is seen in these verses as the righteous branch out of David. So drawing attention to the fact that he's the proper heir to the throne. He is, he is the branch out of David. He's also given the name uh, Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. And what more fitting name could be given to Christ? The perfectly righteous God in the flesh given for us. The Lord, our righteousness. And he talks here about uh, the miracle that will be seen where Israel will be gathered from all nations into their land. They'll experience a glory like that of Solomon's Israel, but it'll it'll be greater than Solomon's Israel ever was. Jeremiah 33 also reflects on this. Jeremiah 33, verse 14. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. And he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. So these two passages parallel each other in many ways. Here again we see the branch, Christ, ruling in justice and righteousness. And here we see this name, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, given as a name to the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem becoming a place of peace and strength because of the Lord's perfect reign in her. So Jeremiah looks at Christ 
And as he looks at Christ, we do not see Christ in his first coming, but in his second coming. And the times when Jeremiah reflects on Christ, it's in connection with the new covenant that he talked about in Jeremiah 31. About the day when um, all of these, these things will come to pass in Israel's future, where there will be a, a complete national restoration, where Christ will serve as the great leader at the heart of that restoration. And so Jeremiah does reflect on Christ, but in a way that is still future even for us. And we see Christ in these passages, but we realize that these things are not completely fulfilled. And Jeremiah has left us these promises that are not yet fulfilled. That's a part of his legacy as well. He gave promises that have been fulfilled, and there are others that we still await. But also, I want to focus, as we think about his legacy, on his personal influence. Jeremiah did not have an influence, well, he, he did have an influence on some people during his lifetime. Uh, although it appears that those people were few compared to the many people that despised and rejected him. As time has gone on, though, his prophecy and his life have affected many people for good. And I'm going to look at a few biblical examples tonight, beginning with, with Daniel. And we know Daniel. He's a prophet who was taken to Babylon as a young man. And he was under a lot of pressure. But even under that pressure, um, to the contrary, he maintained a strong testimony and uncompromising obedience to God. And uh, powerful testimony. And powerful stories in the book of Daniel. He also gave us some enlightening if sometimes confusing, prophetic words about end times. And so Daniel was, was a man greatly used by God. And we know that Jeremiah and Daniel's lives overlapped, but most likely they had little or no contact with each other personally. Uh, Daniel spent almost his entire, li his entire life in Babylon or Persia. Um, Jeremiah spent almost his entire life in Jerusalem, and then in Egypt. But, Daniel did know the name Jeremiah. Whether or not he ever met him personally, at least some of Jeremiah's prophecies made their way to Babylon. And I mentioned this the other day. Jeremiah's name was known in Babylon. People in Babylon knew who Jeremiah was. They knew there was this prophet in Jerusalem who was giving these prophecies. But some of those prophecies in, in their entirety, or at least in large part, made it to Babylon, and Daniel had the opportunity to read those. And it appears that he not only read them, but studied them carefully. In Daniel 9, he tells us, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So, Daniel is studying Jeremiah's prophecy. And as he does, he reads this part about returning to the land after 70 years. And it appears that this was kind of an aha moment for Daniel. He said, wait, 
that's in there. After 70 years, we're going to be able to return. There's going to be this 70-year period where Jerusalem is going to sit waste. And then after that, there's going to be a return. And that, that fires him up. It, it works in his heart, and he goes to the Lord in prayer. Reading Jeremiah's prophecy set him to praying. And um, this is a, a powerful chapter to read, just reading through this prayer that Daniel offers. We're not going to do that tonight. Um, but in it, he confesses the sins of his people. He acknowledges the good and kind nature of God. He pleads with God that his anger would be turned away. And as he makes clear, even in the beginning of the chapter here, this was something that was deeply on his heart. He's coming before the Lord. He's fasting. He has sackcloth on. He's in, in, in a, a picture of humility and mourning. He's before the Lord. He's serious about this, just pouring his heart out to God about these things. But God used Jeremiah and his prophecy in Daniel's life. And it's interesting to think, it's interesting to wonder, how much more did God use Jeremiah in Daniel's life than just this one time? We don't know. But was Daniel's study of Jeremiah's prophecies and of Jeremiah's life, did that help him to have the strength to continue to stay faithful even under the threat of a lion's den? Did he know the story about how Jeremiah spent that time at the bottom of the pit? And when he gets thrown in there, was that on his mind? Thinking about how God delivered Jeremiah out of that pit and he could deliver him out of the den? I don't know. But it is interesting to think about. God is using this older prophet, Jeremiah, even from afar, in this younger man's life, encouraging him and challenging him in his own ministry. Another life that Jeremiah influenced is Jesus. In one of the better-known episodes in Jesus' life, in Matthew 21, he stirs up some trouble in the temple. Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Jesus was furious at the misuse of the space that had been set aside for the worship of God. And in chiding those who were making merchandise of worship, he quoted from Jeremiah. Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 7.11, Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. Jeremiah in his day was reflecting on how the worship of God was no longer from the heart. And we've talked about that, where he, he went after the people. They were going through the motions of worship. But God is saying it's, it's become something for your own benefit, for, your, for you to, to, um, to make profit off of. This isn't about worshiping God anymore. And now as Jesus comes into the temple, he chides them for the very same thing. But it is interesting that Jesus knew Jeremiah's prophecy. It seems strange to talk about an imperfect prophet like Jeremiah influencing the perfect son of God. 
but Jesus studied Jeremiah's prophecy. And on some human level, he learned from it. And so this prophet, who lived all these centuries before Jesus, had an influence on the ministry of Jesus himself. And it's fascinating to me. Finally, he also influenced Paul. In 2 Corinthians 10.17, Paul warns about boasting. He tells the believers in Corinth, but he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And he's talking about how he would be tempted to glory in himself for certain things that are true about him, but he's also offering a warning to this church. Be careful, don't boast in yourself. If you're going to boast, boast in God. And that's what he's saying here. But he also uses that same phrase in his first letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1.31, he talks about the fact that God has chosen to use those that the world looks down on. And why has he done that? Well, so that it's all about him, his wisdom, his righteousness, his sanctification, his redemption. And then he says that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So this phrase, this idea, is not original with Paul. He's quoting from something else that has been written. Well, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. So this idea that clearly had captured Paul enough that he made sure that he's repeating it in multiple letters to this church at Corinth is a quotation from Jeremiah's prophecy. Paul, too, studied and benefited from Jeremiah's prophecy. It begs the question we asked about Daniel. How profoundly was Paul challenged by the words and example of Jeremiah? We don't know if Jeremiah's afflictions in any way prepared Paul for his own. But it is interesting to imagine and to wonder. And these were people who were versed in what Jeremiah had said. They were studying his prophecy. They were learning from it. And it was affecting and strengthening their ministries. And how many other lives have been profoundly affected by Jeremiah? And I even have a hard time measuring how much my own study of this man and his ministry have influenced me for good. Over these last 12 weeks, what, what exactly is the influence that Jeremiah has had on me? I believe there has been an influence. I believe it's been for good. It's hard for me to even measure that. But to consider all of these centuries, how many times have his words and his example served to motivate believers facing difficulty and opposition? How many times have his stern warnings encouraged someone to turn back to God? Only God knows. But that influence continues on. And these are just three examples of people who were personally influenced by Jeremiah centuries after he lived. Let me finish with an honorable mention. All right, there are between 40 and 50 allusions to Jeremiah in the New Testament. And it, it, would, it would have been foolish for us to try to 
to touch on every single one of those tonight. Some are direct quotations, while others simply show the influence of Jeremiah. But I wanted to look together at one notable example when Jeremiah comes up in the New Testament, besides those we've already considered. So take a look with me at Matthew 16. As we, come, as we get there, we're considering the ministry of Christ and a time that he spent with his disciples considering some very significant questions. So Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So this is a great passage, one that's well known to many of us. And, and it forms a, a great uh, foundation for the church as Jesus goes on to talk about that. But I love about this passage, considering the people, who people are comparing Jesus to. So they mention John the Baptist. That makes sense, all right? He, his unique prophetic ministry was fresh on their minds. Uh, they think that he's been resurrected from the dead and, and that Jesus is John the Baptist. Uh, some people mention Elijah, and that too makes some sense because the prophet Malachi prophesied in Malachi 4.5 that Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord. And Jesus actually makes it clear in another passage that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He is this Elijah who is going to come. And so they're not far off there. But it's interesting to me that where else do they go? Well, they thought of Jeremiah. They think that Jeremiah has risen from the dead and he is again ministering in Israel. Some people are convinced that this is Jeremiah back from the dead. And I can think of no better compliment for Jeremiah than to say, I met Jesus and he reminds me of Jeremiah. All along in this study, we've reflected on the parallels between Jeremiah's life and the life of Jesus. And there's a lot more we could have considered. Um, but Jeremiah was Christ-like. And his Christ-like nature is a huge part of his legacy. It lasted until the day of Christ. People were still thinking about it in that day. It continues to be a challenge to us today. So that's who this man was, the kind of legacy he left behind. His life and words have continued to impact lives for more than 2,500 years. Now, I want to be clear, tonight has been anecdotal. All right, We, we haven't come anywhere close to covering all of this, even what's specifically mentioned in Scripture of the influence that Jeremiah had. Um, we can't quantify any person's legacy completely, certainly not Jeremiah. But over the past 12 weeks, I've found Jeremiah becoming my hero. Um, I've come to love him for his fierce boldness, his passionate tears, his faithfulness under fire, his quiet endurance, but also how very human he was. Because he shows us his flaws. He shows us his doubts and his weaknesses. 
and how God worked despite them all, and how Jeremiah grew and learned to trust in God despite those ups and downs. That's a big part of what I love here. Jeremiah is not a superman. As you read his writings, you see him as very human, a struggling person just like the rest of us. Jeremiah is real, and what shines from his life is less the greatness of Jeremiah and more the sufficiency and faithfulness of God. I don't know exactly where this come, came from, but the epitaph has been offered to the, uh, the great military conqueror Alexander the Great. A tomb now suffices him for whom the world was not enough. And they say that about this man. It certainly is true. He was never content with what he was able to conquer. But as you think about his life, he lost all that when he died. And what is his legacy? He was left with enough, little enough that it could fit in a tomb when he died. And we don't know where his tomb is, so it might be big. But, um, but it is, it is a, a sad reflection on his life and unfortunately on the lives of many others, I believe. It's interesting to look people up on Wikipedia and see what it has to say about them. And each Wikipedia entry on a famous deceased person begins with a sentence that follows this format. So it'll give their name. In parentheses, it'll give their date of birth and their date of death. And then it will say, was, and then you fill in the blank. So for example, Thomas Alva Edison, February 11th, 1847 to October 18th, 1931, was an American inventor and businessman. Gaius Julius Caesar, 12 July 100 BC to 15 March 44 BC, was a Roman general and statesman. Neil Alden Armstrong, August 5, 1930 to August 25, 2012, was an American astronaut, aeronautical engineer, and the first person to walk on the moon. Now, I don't expect that I'm going to make it to Wikipedia. But if I did, what would that entry look like? Nathaniel Brown was. And what about you? How would Wikipedia choose to immortalize you in one sentence? Now, it's certainly not fair for us to try to take any person's life and say we can sum it up in one sentence. But it's a fascinating question. And what's more significant is what legacy will you and I truly leave? whether or not it would ever make it on our Wikipedia page. What is the influence that we are going to leave? What about us is going to last? I doubt that any of us will be remembered 2,500 years after we die, if the Lord tarries. But we certainly, if we are faithfully obedient to God in the way that Jeremiah was, can leave a significant legacy for good, just like Jeremiah did. Jeremiah lived a sorry life, but he left a beautiful legacy. I can only hope that we won't do the opposite and live a beautiful life and leave a sorry legacy. So 
encouraging for us to know that even though Jeremiah's life ended in disgrace, um, he has lived on by God's grace and done great good and continues to. And I hope that's a challenge to all of us tonight. And on the last week, I have not left time for questions and comments. So you'll just have to write them all down on your, on your course feedback sheet and, uh, and give me an earful that way. Your reading assignments are done, but I did give you some recommended reading if you want to keep going. If you want to follow along with the history of Judah, Ezra, the book of Ezra is a, a fascinating read. Uh, if you want to continue on and see how God continued to work in the lives of the people who were taken into exile, read the book of Daniel or the book of Ezekiel or both. And uh, those would be good directions to go if you're, if you're looking for it. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for what we consider tonight. Thank you that a man who seemed so much like nothing during his life, who was looked down upon by so many, has left such an enduring influence and who continues to challenge lives even today. And Lord, it's a testament to your power, a testament to your grace, a testament that you could take a man who uh, was very much a man and uh, who was weak and who struggled, but who was willing to trust you and obey, that you took him and, and used him in such a powerful way. Lord, may you use us. Help us to strive not for greatness, but for faithfulness. That, if nothing else, that we could just be obedient to you. And uh, help us, Father. May the example and the message of Jeremiah continue to affect our lives for your glory. And uh, may you make our lives all that you desire them to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.